certainly the love of the Lord never, ever, ever fails. You know, the beautiful thing about the love of, of Jesus is that he loved us despite the fact that we didn't love him back. And if it wasn't for his love, you and I would not be. If you have trusted in Jesus, you would not be in a relationship with him now because it was his love that was really best seen on the cross where he decided to take all of your sin, past, present, and future sins that you didn't even commit. That is love. And you don't know love like that. You're like, man, praise God, if you are married, your wife, your husband could never even close to love you like the love of the Lord. If you have a child, your child could never love you. don't love your child even close to how God loved you. Because when you were an enemy of him, he decided to absorb the full wrath of God. And I praise God. That's who we come to serve. And that's who we come to worship. Can y'all worship Jesus with me in here? His love never, ever fails. Well, I am thankful for another opportunity to be able to come in and worship Jesus corporately with uh, my brothers and sisters. I certainly could have did this at home. But it's something good about coming together with the body of Christ. I think we beat the rain. It's supposed to rain a little bit later. So y'all y'all good. Y'all got it in. Y'all get right back out. Uh, but it's good to be here gathered with you. Listen, I have a strong desire to get back in the book of Romans today. So if you can grab your Bibles and meet me or your devices, your laptops, whatever you got, meet me in the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 3. Uh, if you are new here or uh, if you just started coming here within the last, I don't know, four, maybe five weeks, uh, one of the things you, you should know about our church is that we are passionate about going through books of the Bible. And, and when I say that, I, I literally mean going line by line and verse by verse through an entire book. Since we started our church, this is our fifth book. We've gone through uh, the book of Colossians. We've gone through uh, the book of Jonah. Then we went to, through First Peter and then we went through uh, the book of Habakkuk. And now we're in Romans. This is the longest book we've ever been in. So it's 16 chapters. Uh, but there's something so good. I, I didn't experience that growing up. I didn't go, go to any churches that went through an entire book of the Bible. I don't know if, if you did. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. But there's a, there's a few beautiful things and benefits about going through a book of the Bible. Uh, number one, you get to know that book better by the time we end this series. You should know Romans in and out. You should know who the author is, the audience, the author's intent. You should know the date that it was written. It's just little things that you wouldn't have picked up uh, if you were just reading it uh, in passing. But sitting in it for over a year helps us to know the book better. Uh, that's number one. Number two, it helps me not to pick and choose what I want to preach. If I can be honest with you, man, I, I would come in here and preach stuff that's safe. Stuff that, that's easy, stuff that preaches easy, and, and stuff that excites you. But there's, you know, a, a good healthy diet. That can grow a church, but that won't grow people. A good healthy diet means you need, sometimes you need meat, and sometimes it's okay to have some cake and pies. But every now and then, you got to eat them vegetables, too. And so going through a book of the Bible, I can't pick and choose what I want uh, to preach about. And, and last benefit is you get to see how Jesus fulfills all of Scripture, because there's never a moment you'll come in here and you won't hear about Jesus, no matter what passage we're in. And that's because uh, I don't have to make him up. He's, he fulfills all scripture. And so I hope you guys are going to be rocking along with our series through the book of Romans. If you just started uh, coming to our church, it's a good time to be here because we're only in the third chapter. Although you didn't miss a little bit of butt whooping that Paul gave us in the first and second chapter. But uh, there's some more for you. All right. Verse one, chapter three. And y'all are quiet this morning. Can y'all do me a favor and just talk back a little bit? 
If you feel an A, not a high, but if you feel an amen, <laughs> we say hi out in the lobby. If you, if you feel an amen in your spirit, please, I'm not afraid of you. Just go ahead and say amen. It's all right. If you want to jump up and take a swim in the pool and sit down, I'm, I'm good with it. All right, verse one. So what advantage does the Jew have? Question. Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written. Now, if you write in your Bibles, please write next to uh, verse number four, Psalm 51, verse four, because Paul is now going to reach back into the Old Testament and pull in Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and triumph when you uh, when you judge. Verse five. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abound, uh, bounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some people, please underline that, as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. I want to preach for a little bit from the topic entitled Responding to Objection. Responding to Objection. Let's look to the Lord before we dig in. Uh, Father, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but we do so because of your great mercy. And we are pleading with you this morning to speak to us right out of what you've already spoken in your word. We believe that this is the infallible word of God and it helps us to grow up. It helps us to spiritually and naturally grow up. And so, Father, I pray, oh God, that the word would rest heavy on us today. And may you be glorified. May Jesus be proclaimed. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. May Jesus be proclaimed even out of this text. In Christ's name, we give all glory. Let everybody say amen. Uh, responding to objections. Uh, every now and then, not always, but every now and then, some of you in this room or maybe third, second service or third service will take something that I say from the sermon, a quote, a small snippet from the sermon, and you'll either write it down or you'll, you'll put it in a tweet or something and you'll post it. You'll put it on Twitter. I've seen it on IG stories. I've seen it on Facebook. And I'm always amazed that God uses my little scraps to speak to your heart. And it's encouraging, and you, you, always, you always grammatically quote it better than I actually said it, so praise God and thank you for that. I appreciate that, helping your boy out. But one Sunday afternoon, after the third service, I went home, and I got a good Sunday meal and took a good Sunday nap. Y'all know what a Sunday nap is? That's, that's different than a midweek nap. Uh, a Sunday nap, you know, you can't sleep with your mouth closed. You got to open it just a little bit and snore a little bit. So I ate a good meal on Sunday, and I I took a good Sunday nap, and then when I got up, I grabbed my phone, and I started to scroll through social media. And as I'm scrolling through social media, one of the things I picked up and noticed was that somebody posted a quote from the sermon. And when I read the quote, I sat back and said, I never said that. Have you ever had that where you said something, you communicated something, you thought you were clear as possible, but they misunderstood what you said? I realized that he, he wasn't making something up. It was his interpretation of what I was attempting 
to communicate. And we've all done that. Everybody in the room has communicated something. You thought you were crystal clear, and they walked away with a different interpretation. Anybody ever done that in an argument where you presented your side of the argument, and you were like, they got it. I know they got it. And they said it back to you, and you're like, you did not get what I was saying. No one likes to be misunderstood. No one likes to be misinterpreted. Writers and authors will tell you that. Speakers will tell you that. That the most frustrating thing for them in life is for them to communicate something on paper or oral and then the audience that hears it hears something different. Being misunderstood is very frustrating and apparently Apostle Paul is frustrated by the same thing. Because what he does in our passage verses 1 through 8 is he slows the letter down and he spends time responding to objections and responding to uh, critique and responding to what people assume that he's saying and misunderstanding him. And really, this passage is nothing but question and answers. I don't know if you picked that up. If you read one through eight, it's nothing but a bunch of questions and a bunch of answers. In fact, I did the math for you. One through eight, you get nine questions that Paul asks. They're all rhetorical. He's not expecting them to answer them. But he's, he, he's putting them out there so that he knows that he understands their misunderstandings and he understands their objections. And what I love about Paul is Paul actually deals with his, uh, his, his critical thinkers and those that object to what he's saying. He deals with them a lot differently than we do. Can, can we be honest? Paul never cussed anybody out, but y'all know we do that. Paul didn't go on Facebook and, and do a subliminal message. Paul didn't give anybody the silent treatment because they objected to what he said. No, Paul dealt with their misunderstandings in a loving, in a compassionate way. And he attempts to be to clear up some of the stuff. And this is a this is a real word for somebody. I know y'all waiting for me to get into the text before you take notes, but you should be taking notes right now. Stop getting angry when people object to something you say or do. Stop getting angry when people uh, uh, criticize you. Listen to me. God uses criticism to help you to grow. I've said it before, but it bears a saying again. Listen to me and listen to me. Well, we often think the only thing that helps us to grow is amens and applause. But I've grown more through critique and objection than I've ever grown through applause and amens. And so I don't know if that's you in here. I don't know how you feel and how you respond to, critic, uh, to critique, but I can promise you God is using that to help you to grow. He's using that to help you to sharpen that business plan. He's using that to help you to sharpen the ideas that you have in your mind because nobody starts out and communicates crystal clear. We all have some loopholes and some gaps, and criticism is what God uses to help us to close those gaps, and that's exactly what happens with Paul. Paul blasted the Jews in chapter 2. And so because of that, he says, you know what? I now need to clarify what I was saying. In fact, let's get into it. Look at verse one. So what advantage does the Jew have? Notice he's pointing out the Jews. Or what benefit is circumcision? Again, for the Jews. Here's the answer. Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Right off the bat, Paul addresses what he assumes his readers will, uh, uh, will take from what he wrote in chapter 2. He assumes that when they read chapter 2, Jews will feel like God left them. He assumes that, y'all remember chapter 2? In chapter 2, he blasted the Jews. 
I mean, he hammered the Jews. Remember, he was coming for them for their hypocrisy and for their self-righteousness. He was coming for them for their inconsistencies. Maybe you weren't here in the last uh, four to five weeks, so you don't know what he said. He said, many of you preach, but you don't uphold what you preach. Remember in chapter two, he said, many of you say, don't steal, but you yourselves steal. Many of you say, don't commit adultery, but you freaky and sneaky and you committing adultery. He says, many of you rely on the outward uh, 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 circumcision, but it's not the outward circumcision that saves you, but it's a circumcision of the heart. He said, many of you boast in the law, but the very law you boast in is what you break. And so Paul blasted them one after another in chapter two. He gets to chapter three and he's like, wait, I got to clarify some things with you. I got to help you to understand I'm not anti-Jewish. You, you got to understand what Paul is doing. The, the first critique and the objection to Paul is that they, he knew that they would assume that he was anti-Jewish. He knew that they would assume that he was against his own people. And so he asked two questions to help them and then gives them a, a positive answer. Here's the first question. What advantage does the Jew have? Second question. What is the benefit of circumcision? And then he gives the answer. Here's the answer. Considerable in, in, in every way. They were entrusted with the word of God. He, he's like, I, I know I blasted you. I know I came hard for those that were Jewish in, in chapter two. But now that I'm in chapter three, I need to help you to realize that being Jewish actually had a benefit. What's the benefit? You were trusted with the very word of God. In other words, all of the Old Testament is, is somehow written by someone of Jewish descent. You get Moses wrote a lot of Old Testament. You get the, the prophets wrote a lot of Old Testament that was specific for God's people. And so, Mo, so now Paul is picking up the pen in chapter three and he's like, listen, I know I blasted you. But listen, you have benefits as a Jew. What is the benefit? You were brought up with the very word of God. Now, I, I know that's not hitting you hard. And so let me try to make this a little bit clear. Being Jewish didn't save them. But being Jewish did have a benefit because they were in God's chosen nation. OK, let me help you out. Being Christian doesn't say uh, being in a Christian household doesn't save you, but it is a benefit. You grew up with a mama that was praying. You grew up with a daddy that was in the word and you got to benefit from watching them apply the gospel to their life. Yes, it is a benefit, but it didn't save you. Let me go deeper. You come into church this morning. Praise God, but it doesn't save you. But can we agree in this very moment you are being exposed to what millions of maybe billions of people have never heard the gospel message of Christ. It doesn't save you. But it's a benefit for you hearing the good news of Christ. And Paul is trying to say that to him. He, he's trying to say, listen, chapter two, I'm telling you, yes, you're, you're, you're wrong. Y'all are, are going down the wrong path as Jews. But here now in chapter three, let me tell you, I'm not anti-Jewish. It's a benefit. Why? Because you were entrusted with the very words of God. You were entrusted with the oracles. And I love this because what Paul does is Paul tears them down in chapter two. But in chapter three, he builds them back up. And that is the sign of a good leader. Every good leader knows how to deconstruct and reconstruct. Like, don't, don't think that deconstruction is negative. Deconstruction is negative when all you do is tear people down. 
If all you do is, is pull people down and tell people the negative aspects of who they are, but you never get to chapter 3, you leave them hopeless. If he ended Romans in chapter 2, every Jew in Rome would have felt hopeless, but he gets to chapter 3 and he'd be like, oh, but there's a benefit to being Jewish. And so deconstruction and reconstruction are both the will of God. And, and not just good leaders, but you're a bad friend if you just tear people down. You got to learn how to build people back up. If I went around the neighborhood and tore all the houses down and I didn't build anything back up, everybody would be homeless. And many of us, that's all we do. We can point out 10 negative things about you, but we don't know how to build you back up. You know, every week when y'all come here, that's part of my job is to deconstruct thinking and unhealthy uh, ways of, of living. And I try to reconstruct it with the gospel every week. That's my job. Tear down build up. And that's what Paul does. Chapter two, he tore him down. And some, here's the thing. Some of you need chapter two. Some of you need somebody to pull you down and tell you you're wrong. But you also need chapter three. And you don't need to even go to a church that all they do is deconstruct. You need some reconstruction. And so Paul, number, objection number one, he's not anti-Jewish. I tore you down in chapter, three, uh, chapter two, but now in chapter three, I'm telling you, being Jewish has advantages. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here, here's objection number two. I mean, I got stuck here. Objection number two is concerning our sin and God's faithfulness. Here's what they're thinking. Look at verse number three. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? I love this answer because it's the strongest no you can get in, in, in the New Testament. Look at what he says. Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you are judged. Paul raises the question about God's faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. Again, he looks back at chapter two. He's like, I, I know y'all was bugging out. And so one of the assumptions y'all could have is because you're bugging out that God is unfaithful to you. But I love this because he's like, listen, even though you messed up in chapter two. God remains faithful. Now, I thought you'd be more excited about that because you're, you're reading this from an academic standpoint. But let me get in your life. Even though you've messed up, God remains faithful. And the only people that get the, the only people that get excited about that are people that realize they've messed up. See, if you are sitting there cute, calm and collective, you may not think you messed up. But one of the things I know about God is when God looks at your life, we mess up time and time and time again. Some of you still haven't rebound from that decision. Some of you still ain't rebound because you turned up for your birthday and, and, and you was out there and you going down the wrong path. But what I know about God is God is faithful and he remains faithful despite the fact that you are often trifling. He remains faithful despite the fact that we often make decisions. And I love this because. We serve a God that doesn't cut us off when we mess up. We serve a God that doesn't, that doesn't look at our, 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 our bugging out, our sinfulness, and say, I don't want them anymore. He, he, we serve a God that says stuff like this. I will never leave them nor forsake them. We serve a God that says none can pluck them out of my hand. That's the kind of God we serve. And what, what I don't want you to take from what I'm saying is that grace is a license to sin. That's not what I'm saying. And if that's your thinking, you need to check whether you're really a Christian. 
Because don't no real Christian use grace as a license to sin. We use grace as a license to worship because God didn't kill my butt when I messed up. And so he says, look, chapter two, y'all was bugging out. But chapter three, I'm telling you, even though you were bugging out, God remains faithful. Let me put some Bible on God's faithfulness. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse 13, say it this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I, I, I just don't know how, how you feel about this, but I'm grateful that we serve a God that is faithful. And when Paul wants to give us an example Paul says, I'm not just going write to write about this. I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament because I need you to see how faithful God is. He pulls on Psalms 51 verse 4. Now, Psalm 51 verse 4, look, look at what he says here in verse 4. It says, absolutely not. God, let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. I don't know how your, your Bible does. Mine bolds out the Old Testament. So it says that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you are judged. When I read that, I said, where is that at? I went back to the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 51. Now, you know why we have Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is what David writes after he messes up. Oh, God, don't, don't miss this. Psalm 51 is what we get when David decides because he slept with Bathsheba, he decides to repent. What we see is he gives us an example of something, not just anybody, a king, a leader that was unfaithful, but God remained faithful to him. And he gives us that example. Maybe you don't know the story of David and David's sin. David was walking on the roof one day, sunny day, and when he looks over the roof, he, he sees a young lady bathing on top of her roof. And in my Martin voice, he sees the water glistening all over her body. And when, when, he, when he sees it, when he sees it, he gets this unhealthy attraction for her. And what is interesting is he starts to acquire about her. Who is this young lady? Finds out that she's actually married. Not just married, but married to a guy named Uriah. Here's what you need to know about Uriah. He is a faithful soldier, a loyal subject to King David. But despite the fact that he knows about her husband, he summons her to his chamber. She gets to the chamber and he ends up sleeping with her and he sends her back. And then he hears two words that he doesn't want to hear. I'm pregnant. And when he hears this is a true story, like you can't make this stuff. But it's in the Bible. And, and when, when he when, when he hears that I'm pregnant, he decides in his mind, I'm going to create a plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide my sin. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull Uriah off the battlefield and, uh, you know, uh, days away from being away from his wife. When he gets back home, they're going to have some good, as the clumps would say, some good relations. And, and so when, when they have relations, she'll, he'll think that that's his baby. But Uriah fools him. Uriah gets back and he never even sleeps at his house. He gets back and he sleeps. He's so loyal. He sleeps at David's doorstep. And sleeps all night. And David tried to, in a, in a desperate maneuver, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send him back to the battlefield. But when I send him back, can I preach Bible here? Yeah. When I send him back to the battlefield, I'm going to send him with his own death warrant. He's going to go back to the battlefield. He's going to give this letter from me to the, my general, Joab. And, and in the letter it said, put Uriah on the front line. And when you put him on the front line, have the soldiers in the heat of battle retreat so that he could die. He ends up getting killed and David thinks that he gets away with it. Oh, but a few months later, 
a man named Nathan comes up to David. And when he comes up to David, he tells him this carefully constructed story of treachery and of theft. And he gets David tight. David is upset. And David's like, whoever is in that story, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, I'm glad you said that. Because you're that man. See, let me pause for a second. Every one of us needs a Nathan in our life. I know we run. You go to the person that's a yes person. You go to the person that's going to coddle you in your sin. But every now and then, you need somebody that talks reckless to you and doesn't care that you're offended. Every now and then, you need somebody to call you out on your sin. Every now and then, you need somebody to say, you're unfaithful to the Lord and he remains faithful to you. But you better knock it off because one day he's going to turn his back on you. All of us need a Nathan. Stop running to the person that always agrees with you. You need somebody that's not going to agree with you. You need somebody that's going to call you out on your sin. At least I need that. Because here's how I, how I live life. You give me an inch, I know how to take a mile. And if nobody called me, I say, I, I built my life with a bunch of people that will easily call me out on my sin. If I had to sin right now, you know how much work it would take? It'd be too exhausting. By the time I get to the hotel room, I'm like, whew, I'm going back home because I'm tired. Listen, you need, you need a Nathan in your life. And so David falls in sin and Nathan calls him out. And even though he still had to suffer consequence, he did, God did not remove his spirit from him. He allows, he stayed faithful to him. And that's a word for some of you because some of you came in this morning and you feel like God forgot about you. You came in this morning, you feel like God doesn't want to be bothered with you. You think that your sin has separated you so much from God that he doesn't want to be in relationship with you, but he does want to be in relationship. How do I know? Because did, did you read this? It, it says if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Did you read this? Absolutely not. Your unfaithfulness, you know why? Because God's covenant with you doesn't depend on you. God's covenant with you depends on his strength and his ability to keep you. You, are you hearing me? That there's a doctrinal term called perseverance of the saints. It, it literally means once saved, always saved, or eternal security. But here's what you need to know about that. Perseverance has nothing to do with your perseverance. It has everything to do with God's perseverance and his ability to keep you. God keeps us. Why? Because he's faithful. Ooh, I wasn't going to go here, but I got to go here. I wasn't going to go here. I wasn't going to go here, but, but I, I just feel like teaching Bible today. There, 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 there's a story. There's a story that the Abrahamic covenant. Write this down. Genesis 15. I don't have time because I got eight minutes left. But there is a story in, in uh, Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And when he makes a covenant with Abraham, I love it because if you understand how covenants were made in the Old Testament, it is not how, not how we make covenants. You know, when I got married to my wife, we had to sign legal documents. It's, that's not how they did covenants back in the day. Back in the day, they would take a, a, a sheep or a lamb and they'd cut it in half. And two people would cut that thing and they put it side by side. Y'all remember I taught this in Bible study. They put them side by side. And the two people that made the covenant would both walk between the two dead animals. And when they walked between the two dead animals, really what they were doing was acting out the covenant. Because they were saying, if one of us breaks this covenant, what happened to that animal will happen to us. Now, I love this because in Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, the Bible says that Abraham cuts the sacrifice in half 
and he puts them side by side. But the Bible says that God, that, that a firing smoking pot, read it, goes through. The firing smoking pot is God's presence. It goes through the two pieces. But here's what I love. Abraham never went through. You know why Abraham never went through? Because God knew that if he depended the covenant on Abraham, he'd break it the next day. But God is like, I ain't gonna, I'm not even going to put my son through that. I'm going to walk through and put the whole covenant on me. See, this is why I love a faithful God. Because if you could lose it, you would have lost it this morning. But God is so faithful that he knows how to keep you even when you don't know how to keep yourself. So he says, listen, will the unfaithfulness of, of, of the Jews nullify God's faithfulness? He says, absolutely not. God is a faithful God. Let, let's end here. Verse 5. I told you to underline this, so I'm going to just read down and get to it, and then we'll go home. I know y'all want to do brunch before, uh, before it rains. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, he says, what are we to say? Am I, using, I am using human, and human argument. Is God's unrighteousness to inflict, uh, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Watch this. Verse eight. Why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. All of the objections that Paul has addressed so far have been assumptions. Every one of them. So far, Paul has read chapter two and he reread it and said, you know what? Let me clarify because I assume that they will think this. But now we get to a real rumor. Paul is not addressing. Don't miss this. Paul is not addressing assumptions anymore. He's addressing what people are actually saying. How do I know that? Because in verse eight, it says, just as some people slanderously say word got back to him that people are saying that Paul is spreading this lie that 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 God that, that you can remain in sin because God has is so faithful to his covenant with you that he'll overlook your sin. That's why he says we might as well do evil. That good may abound. But Paul never taught that. But what I love about Paul is he's addressed assumption after assumption, but you get to the rumor and he never addresses it. Don't miss this. He ends verse eight by saying their condemnation is deserved. He never addresses the rumor. Why? Because there are just some rumors she just got to let pass. That there are just some things that he knows that their minds aren't able to comprehend what he's saying. And so he says, you know what? There are some of the Jews that are saying false accusations and slanderous things against me, and they won't be able to comprehend what I'm saying. So I'm not going to waste time on them. I'm not even going to address the rumor. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, that's a word for somebody, because some of you are still trying to chase down rumors and what people said about you and how they lied on you. But I love what Paul does here. He walks away and doesn't even address the rumor. He lets them say whatever they want to say. And we waste so much time on tracking down rumors. You waste so much time tracking them. At the end of the day, it's not that you're trying to clear your name. You're just prideful and you want everybody to like you. But I'm going to help you this morning. Everybody is not going to like you. There are some people that will spread a rumor, and I don't care how clear you are with them. They will not receive it. And so, therefore, sometimes it's better just walk away. 
Just walk away. I know, you, I know it feels uncomfortable. I know you don't like to be lied on, but there are just some things. And I've had to learn this. And I'm about to be 39 years old on, on, on uh, Wednesday. Thank you for the birthday gift. God bless you, mama. I'm about to be 39. There's some things I've learned. There are some rumors I've learned it's better to just walk away. I went to the Apple store in Soho. And when I was at the Apple store, there's four stalls in the bathroom. I ran to the bathroom and, and I don't know, ladies, I don't know if you know about men's stalls, but we have, at least in the Apple store, there's two sit-down stalls, and then we have stand-up stalls. But we don't just have all stand-up stalls that are the same size. We have some adult ones, and we have some, some kid ones. And in the Apple store, there's two sit-down stalls, and I'm teaching them the bathroom in the Apple store. Okay, there's two stalls to sit down, and there's two stand-up stalls. And a father and a son were both in the stalls. And I'm waiting in line for the stand-up stall, and, and the father finishes his business, and he goes to wash his hand, but the boy stays there. And the, and the father says, son, are you okay? And, and the boy says, no, I don't know how to flush the toilet. There's no handle. And the father says to him, so prophetically to me, the father says to the son, son, the, the mess will wash down. All you got to do, because it's automatic, is walk away. That's a word for somebody. See, you missed it, but I can get you out of here and get the brunch if you catch it real quick. Listen to me. There are some rumors that will not go away until you've learned to walk away. Let it go. Paul never addresses it. Paul says this is what they're saying. They're saying that I'm preaching that you can do evil. Just go ahead and sin because God won't judge you and good will come of it. But Paul is like, I'm not even going to address that. Their condemnation is deserved. And these words haunt some of us in this room. Their condemnation is deserved, meaning there are all of us in this room deserve condemnation. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you got grace. But those of you who haven't trusted in Jesus, where do you stand with the Lord? As we talk about responding to objections, you realize that you are the main you are the main one objecting against a holy God if you haven't trusted in Jesus. Your goodness is an objection to a holy God. Your goodness is an objection to the perfectness of a holy God. And some of you in here don't know Jesus. So as we talk about responding to objections, yes, we got to some practical application, but the greatest thing you can take away if you don't trust Jesus is I need to trust him. Why? Because verse 8 hangs over my head. Their condemnation is deserved. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus. Maybe the punishment of sin still hangs on you. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least pray for us in this room. No altar call. The altar is at your seat today. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, listen, don't let today go by without trusting. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. Y'all young people, y'all hear me. Anybody under 20, hear me. You can give your life to the Lord today and stand out. Some of you fit in so well in carnal places. Some of you fit in so well with your judge. We joke and laugh at everything. We look like the world. And none of us are standing out and shining for Jesus. None of us are being that salt and light for Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to pray for you today. No altar call. I want to pray for you in your seat. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, I want you to see one of us. Somebody up here standing that is doing communion. 
some of the brothers that are in the back, see somebody and ask them, what does it mean to go from spiritual death to spiritual life? Father, I pray for everybody in this room. Father, I realize that some of us have a hard time with critique. We really do. We have a hard time with people objecting to the things we do. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be like Paul, to graciously address some and clarify and sharpen. But also help us to be like Paul, to realize that there are some relationships that just need to, need to end. Some situations that are so toxic and so unhealthy that we just need to walk away. So, Father, I pray for boldness for those in the room. I also pray for the one that doesn't know you, hasn't trusted in you, hasn't given their life to you. Father, we don't want to let the moment pass without praying for them and seeking a response. So, Father, would you save them today? Would you help us not to lean on mommy's salvation and daddy's salvation? But would you help us to lean on Jesus and Jesus alone? That is the only way that we will be saved. Father, we don't want this, this verse, verse 8, to hang on as their condemnation is deserved. We know we deserve it. But Father, we thank you for grace, and we pray that that grace would be fully extended to every single person in this room. May they trust you today. May they be like Nicodemus. What must I do to be saved? It's in Christ's name we give all glory.